Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count in Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey, with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism. On Early Risers, I talk a lot about how very young children are constantly absorbing information around them, including information about race. And one of the places where our children can have these formative experiences is in an early childhood or pre-K classroom. Across the United States, about a quarter of all children under the age of five are attending some kind of formalized child care. That's according to the Center for American Progress. These early childhood programs can be a great start to learn about the world. Children also learn how to interact with other people beyond their immediate family. But part of this learning also involves absorbing the implicit biases in our environment. However, these unconscious assumptions can be challenged when you have teachers that are trained to recognize their own implicit biases. Implicit bias is something that you often don't see. That's why I'm here. I'm here to help. Um, This is why other people are here in this space, to help you grow as a teacher. This feels really bad in the moment. It's going to make you a better teacher. My guest on today's episode of Early Risers is Sheila Williams-Ridge. She co-directs the Child Development Laboratory School, also known as the Lab School. It's a research-based preschool program at the University of Minnesota. Sheila Williams-Ridge is an experienced early childhood educator and expert on nature-based learning. She's co-author of the book, Nature-Based Learning for Young Children, Anytime, Anywhere, on Any Budget. As co-director of the Lab School, she's helping a new generation of early childhood educators to recognize their own implicit biases and how to respond to racialized incidents in the classroom. I started my conversation with Sheila Williams-Ridge by asking her about her own childhood experiences with race and racism when she was growing up in Las Vegas in the 1970s and 80s. So, Sheila, I know you grew up in Las Vegas. Do you remember the first time your parents or maybe another adult actually talked to you about race? Yes. I don't know if I remember the exact first time, but I come from a family that is very diverse. So my dad is African-American and my mom is both African-American and German. So she, um, I would say, is kind of white passing. We, I grew up in Las Vegas, so she would be Mexican passing. A lot of mm. people come up to her and start speaking in Spanish. She doesn't know any Spanish. But my grandmother immigrated to the United States as an adult from Germany. So my mother is you know, about three quarters white. And so I remember when we first moved to Las Vegas, I was seven years old and my mom went to go look at houses. We were living in uh, a duplex that was not Mm -hmm. very safe. People tried to break in all the time. But I remember my mom saying, I'm going to go look at houses. 
your dad can't come or they won't show us houses in this neighborhood. Wow. Um, and so I remember thinking, oh, okay, like that's my mom's job. And so as I got into school, I was in school when they were doing a lot of desegregation work in Las Vegas. And so I would mm-hmm. often be bused really far. And when I would have trouble, because they would, of course, bus us to mostly white schools, that I would get a spot not so great in the classroom, mostly in the back. Mm. And although I protested, I probably needed glasses from a very young age. But I learned that if I had my mom come in and talk to the teacher or drop me off, or if I forgot my lunch, my mom brought it, I would get a better spot in the class. Really? And so I remember thinking that's a technique that I used several times when I was like, oh, no, I'm not being treated fairly. Let me have my mom bring my lunch. What do you think that taught you about race, knowing that your mom, who was much lighter than you, could get you in and get you some advantages that you couldn't get on your own? Right. I think from a really early age, it taught me the power that society has kind of inherently put in different people for different reasons. Um, But I also remember, like, at home in our community that my dad was someone that, you know, he was a firefighter in our neighborhood. Like he was someone that looked up to and I did not feel as though he was powerless. I just felt as though his power was more centered in our community Mm. and that hers had a different impact in different spaces, but that both of my parents were very loving, very supportive, and that they both had strength that they brought to me in different ways. So, Sheila, I want to talk a little bit about your work at the lab school at the University of Minnesota. And I also happen to know that you do some work with students that are burgeoning or wanting to become early childhood educators. And so talk to us a little bit about what you may have observed from up and coming teachers in the classroom around race. Yeah, I I notice a lot of different things, but in the past couple of years, we've really started to more deliberately focus on equity in the classroom, in anti-bias and anti-racist pedagogy and kind of the actions that students need to take. So that's been something that we have integrated all along, but I feel like we've made a, a much more deliberate effort to really make sure students are reflecting on this on a regular basis. And I remember even when I started as the director of the lab school, I had been there for about five years as the assistant director. Then I became the director about six years ago, um, you know, doing observations of student teachers in the classroom and doing, you know, observations of new teachers and needing to have conversations with them. So Mm -hmm. there was a class that I was observing and I was watching their large group activity. And I noticed that, you know, there was a couple of children being disruptive and the teacher kind of called both of the children and, you know, told them to stop. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay. And then it happened a little bit later and it was the same two children, but the teacher kind of said it in the same way and then got up and removed the child of color and moved them to a different spot, right? Like after they Mm -hmm. had been disruptive. And I thought, so that raised a, a pretty big red flag for me with that Mm -hmm. that was the person that she chose to move. You know, so I watched another day and I noticed a pattern. And so Mm -hmm. I, you know, I pulled the teacher aside and I said, so this is a learning environment. This is what this space is for. I need to tell you that I've noticed a pattern in how you're addressing children. I counted the number of times that you said this child's name during the day. 
I, you know, counted the number of times that you singled out this child's behavior in large group, even though these behaviors are normative. I need you to just reflect on that for a little while and then tomorrow we'll meet and sit down Mm. and talk about it. And so having that as a space where we can say, this is a learning environment. I expect you to try things and to to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And this is not punitive. This is about your growth as a teacher. I believe that you can still be a really amazing teacher if you have all the information. And I bet this is something that you didn't notice. I noticed it. Um, Implicit bias is something that you often don't see. That's why I'm here. I'm here to help. Um, This is why other people are here in this space, to help you grow as a teacher. This feels really bad in the moment. It's going to make you a better teacher. Just in the past few weeks, so we have a weekly seminar where the teachers talk about what is happening in class and, and how to talk about different situations. We've had some that have come up recently. Um, we had an, a moment in a class where um, a child said something about wanting to play, you know, dramatic play, but wanted mm-hmm. to play a game around slavery. And the teacher was like, mm. uh, absolutely not. <laughs> like, that's not a thing that we'll play. But then got a little bit of pushback from another staff person about, is this something that children, you know, should be able to play, right? We know that children play through difficult, you know, things that they're trying to work through. And so yeah. having a, a really frank conversation about, nope, there are some things that as teachers we do not want to condone uh, because they are hurtful, because they are, as the as the teacher in the situation called, oppressive. And we do not want anyone to feel that way um, at school, at work, or in the community. So these are things that we won't play. We won't play around issues of oppression. We won't play around issues of domestic violence or verbal mm-hmm. abuse. Like those are topics that are not okay in the early childhood classroom, nor should they be okay in the greater society. But we do hope right. that our classrooms that we're creating are these little microcosms of society that we're creating. Um, But we also want to have direct conversations. So we tell children things like, we don't say these things because it hurts people, but Mm -hmm. I can see that you're thinking about this. Let's talk more about how you're feeling about people who may look different than you. And so difficult situations like that offer us opportunities to have difficult conversations. And we don't want to shy away from that, right? That's what your podcast is all about, Absolutely. is how to start these things. So yes. there are those moments where they crack the door open and then you say, okay, so this is as far as this door opens, but we're going to talk right here in the doorway. Yeah, right, um, right. And then, yeah, right. And then we're going to close this door and we're going to use another door. We're going to open a window, right? Um, because this is not the way that we're going to approach it. But I appreciate that I can see like that your mind is thinking about these things yes. and it is worthwhile for us to have the conversation. You know, as I'm listening to you, Sheila, your students have such a unique opportunity to have you watching them. And as you are observing them, to have that conversation about maybe some implicit biases that you have recognized. And I, I'm sure you're aware of the studies that happen at Yale and Northwestern about teachers in early childhood setting. And sometimes these teachers are of a variety of races, but often across races in terms of the teacher are singling out, as you mentioned about that particular incident, singling out Uh, the Black students for behavioral issues, Uh, in particular, the Black boys, but both actually Black boys and Black girls. And so if you were able to, like, speak to an early childhood educator, somebody that's out there been holding it down for several years, you know, in this field, you know, taking care of our young children um, and has not had the benefit of being in your classroom 
What would you tell them about opening up this conversation about their implicit bias? Hmm, that's a great question. <laughs> so I really like to see teachers kind of go from their strengths, right? What do you already feel comfortable with? Where are you comfortable in the classroom? Let's dig into those spaces. It's all—it's the same way I feel about when I'm talking to people about like engaging in nature. Mm -hmm. Like if you're like, I don't really think I love the outdoors. Let's start with flowers. Like, do you like flowers? Do you like to get flowers on your yeah. birthday? Do you like cooking? Okay, great. Because all that is nature. So <laughs> let's start from a place that you're already in love and comfortable. And so, you know, with teachers who have been in this field, it's really thinking about what do they already love about young children? Mm -hmm. What do they love about teaching? And what are some of their hopes and goals for the young children that they care for or even the student teachers that they are helping to foster their development? So if what they really want the children to do is just to feel ready to go on to school, okay, well, what do schools look like today? What are the skills that those children will need and how can you foster those things in your classroom? And we know that like our society today, feel so divided in so many yes. ways. And what are the ways that we can help foster children's identity of community and how to build community? Because I feel like somehow we have gotten off track with yeah. that. Our, you know, young people are really starting to lead the way in this and we just want to continue to to fix it because it seems as though some of the adults, older adults, are not as community focused. Mm -hmm. And so what are those skills in early childhood? Not shying away from conflict, right? How do you resolve conflict, not avoid conflict? Because conflict is going to happen. Conflict has to happen. And conflict is not bad in, in and of itself. Of itself. Yep. It is when you're having these really important discussions. And so what are the spaces in your class and when is the time that you can have important conflict and important discussions? And so when something happens, we have group conversations uh, and we do these in a large group setting. So our student teachers can see, you know, how that mm -hmm. feels to have a conversation with children about something that doesn't feel very good. We had a child a few years ago who came to school and said like to a child that was brown that you can't play with us because we're playing baseball and brown people can't play baseball because wow. uh, that's what happened to Jackie Robinson, right? And so huh. lots of adults have really good intentions with books and I love books. And yet books alone are not going to get children to understand racial identity and bias. And so when you read books like the story of Jackie Robinson to a group of four-year-olds, it has to be followed up with conversation yeah. and not one day of conversation, but probably weeks yes. of conversation mm -hmm. because you have to talk about things like in early childhood terms, like that didn't feel fair. That made someone sad. That makes people feel bad, right? And so when something like that happens in your classroom, because a child, they're always listening to us, but they're taking away maybe not what we thought they would from that yeah. story. You have to have time to continue to process those things with young children. And I think also not always reading books that start from a place of, you know, of deficit. The story of Jackie Robinson is, is a very hopeful book, mm -hmm. but you need to be able to carry that book through. You need to be able to talk about injustice. Yes and and yes. fairness and what's happening. And if you're just reading at, you know, you have 15 minutes at large group and you just read that book or you have, you know, parents that are reading that book at home um, or like the child that I talked about earlier that they maybe read, you know, a book about how slavery was mm -hmm. so unfair and then the story is over or they only talk about it during Black History Month, 
you can be building more bias and more stereotypes in children's minds if you don't take time to have the yeah, conversation. and to put it in context and to say that yes. was at this point in time, but today this is what is, you know, actually happening. Absolutely, right? Like we know that that is not the way that people should treat each other. It was very bad then and it would be so awful if that happened today. I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. My guest today is Sheila Williams-Ridge. She co-directs the Ladd School at the University of Minnesota. It's a research-based preschool program where she's helping to prepare the next generation of early childhood educators to examine how race and implicit bias show up in the classroom. So Sheila, because I know you, I also know that this work that you're doing in the classroom, you kind of spearheaded to say, this is a portion that I really kind of want to build out, you know, in the training. So where did that come from? Like, where did the impetus for you to do that and to make sure that that was ingrained in your teaching and, and observation? What made you decide to do that? I think the the biggest reason that I started um, wanting to integrate more of kind of equity work into the student teaching experience was, one, because I had really amazing mentors, women who were mostly white in early childhood, but that really understood the deep work of equity and injustice and, you know, and solving justice problems in the classroom. So what I noticed when I got to the lab school was that there were so many white teachers being educated through the program. It was a, a large majority of the teachers that were going through the University of Minnesota um, in the early childhood department were white. It's, it's starting to balance out a little bit bit more, but thinking about their experience in the classroom. And so we we read some books like White Teacher by Vivian Paley, or I can't remember exactly the title of the book, but I think it's called What If All the Kids Are White? And, yes. um, and so by those... Louise Derman Sparks. Yes, yes. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what are the, those important things? And we had a teacher, and this was my first year when I was the director, and one of the student teachers said, I don't really need to... Uh, learn all of this equity stuff because I already know what school I want to work at and it's mostly white. And at that moment, I thought there's so much work to do. So (laughs) also, thank you for providing the exact, (laughs) yes, right? Like this is, this is about the work. So I think that if there are teachers and they feel as though this is a place that they're struggling, there are teachers out there that can mentor them in this space because there are teachers that are really doing this work well. And so I'm really excited about um, the opportunity to be both kind of a mentor and a collaborator with teachers in the moment and really build on the things that they are already doing. And and then hearing from teachers about the places that they want to grow, always starting from those places. Because everybody has their own personal journey that they're on. And so, you know, allowing people to, and just helping them, you know, along that journey. Um, that's That's really beautiful. Absolutely. And I'm not the teacher that I was, you know, oh gosh, now, you know, 15 years ago or, you know, or so, um, I'm a different teacher. And I remember a moment when I was like, I think it might've been my first year uh, when I kind of moved from doing more administrative work to doing some teaching. And a child said, like, this is what we're playing. We're playing slave and master. And I was like, no, you're not. 
And then wow. that was the end. I was like, this is the end of the conversation. You will never play that at school. And That's I it. did not have, right? I was not opening any door. I slammed the door closed. <laughs> um, but but I re- have reflected on that so many times because I thought, oh, no, like, I lost the opportunity to start a really important conversation in that moment. And also, I took care of myself in the moment. And so, yeah. right? Like, I was yeah. I was not feeling good in that moment. And I was like, no, like, no, you, you may not uh, play that at school, especially I'm standing right here. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because um, we know that that happens a lot. Uh, adults get uncomfortable. Absolutely. You know, I say one of the reasons why, you know, we struggle so much uh, around issues of race is because we can't talk about it. Right. And it makes adults feel very uncomfortable. And so often adults do default to shutting things down. And so can you talk a little bit about like, how do you open up those conversations? What should you say, you know, to a child who asks a question um, about race and, you know, and how do adults kind of tap into that courage to kind of have that conversation with that young, young child? Yes. And so I, you know, I shared the experience, um, you know, when it happened to me on the playground and, uh, and after that, I talked with the person that was the director and I said, this is how this made me feel. I reflected on it. And and she basically said, like, this is what teachable moments are, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. this, is, this is when this work happens. But you don't have to feel as though this, this needs to always be you. But these are conversations that need to happen. And so as you grow as a teacher, we hope that you will lean into this more Mm -hmm. and more and giving people a little bit of space to take care of themselves in the moment and to come back on it, um, I think is okay because we're all growing, right? And we all need to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. We all need to to care for ourselves, but we don't want to lose these moments of opportunity with young children. And so um, another moment that I remember just feeling uncomfortable was, so I was the, you know, only African-American staff in a program and, uh, and they were, there were a group of children and it happened to be a group of all white children and, you know, with a white teacher and they were singing and playing in a, you know, in a really lovely way. And then I walked by and I heard what they were listening to. And they were listening to Ella Jenkins. Did you feed my cow? Yes, ma'am. Could you tell me how? Yes, ma'am. What did you feed her? Corn and hay. What did you feed her? And, um, and you know, she's a, a wonderful, you know, talented African-American artist. Um, but she sings, you know, a lot of slave songs. Was she covered with tick? Yes, ma'am. Well, how did she die? And in the moment, seeing that teacher dancing around with those children, Mm. you know, singing, like, did you feed Mm -hmm. my cow? It made me feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. And so this happened after the first incident. And so having the tools then to talk with the teacher and say, this is how this made me feel. This impacted Mm -hmm. me in a big way. This is why. And having the teacher who was also incredibly talented, say, I hear your perspective, I see you, I respect you, and these are the ways that we're going to change our practice. For me, that's what really being an early childhood teacher is about, about being able to listen and say, I hear your perspective, 
I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel welcome in this environment. These are ways that we're going to change our practice to make sure that that's always true. Um, and and so leaning into these conversations, I think the more you know teachers get comfortable with that, the the better it will be for both the adults in the space and the children in the space. And I think that that will lead into really um, wonderful conversations with parents because that's one thing that we haven't had a chance to talk about uh, yet, but parents sometimes don't have the same viewpoint as teachers when it comes to yeah, these issues. That's true. Um, and sometimes parents want us to not talk about these things with their children. They don't want their child to be uncomfortable. They don't want their child to feel as though they're, you know, not living in a utopia. And I think that that can be unfair to young children. I think that children deserve to hear about society and where we live together. Well, and we know that children are curious. So especially very young children, they are absorbing everything in their environment. They are uh, picking everything up and they ask a lot of questions, which is appropriate at that age. And so I've heard you talk about a time where you talked with a young child in your program that came to your office. And what I remember about that story is you did a lovely job of answering this child's question and really opening up the conversation. Can you tell us about that? Oh, sure. Um, so a child came into my office because they weren't feeling well. And as I'm taking care of them, you know, he leans over and says, you're black. And I said, yeah, I am. And then he says, I'm white. And I was like, oh, you know, like you're noticing that we look different, right? I've gotten better mm-hmm. at this conversation as, yes. <laughs> as I have gotten, you know, as, right? As we learn and grow as teachers. And so I said, yeah, you know, you're noticing some some differences about us. And he, and then he says, everyone in my family is white. And I mm. said, yeah, that's interesting. Sometimes everyone in the family looks alike. And sometimes people in the families look very different. In my mm-hmm. family, people look lots of different ways. And I happen to have a family photo that I, you know, I bring down and I show mm-hmm. it to him. And he's like, who's this? And who's this? And so I'm telling him about like, you know, my grandma, she has, you know, like blonde, white hair and right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm telling him about all these people. And this is my dad and my aunt. And then he says, can I keep it? <laughs> and I said, well, no, <laughs> like this is my family picture. And I was right. like, but, you know, but anytime you want to see it, you can. And um, and I said, you know, maybe you bring a picture of your family, like we can talk about families. And we started a really wonderful conversation. And, and I talk with student teachers about that and about other mm. moments like that where I can, you know, make a connection with children. And, um, and I want them to have an opportunity to talk to me to ask me questions because I think that they sometimes, you know, when they're young, they have questions about that. Um, And then just a few weeks ago, we had some kittens visit our program and uh, there's a child that is petting the kittens and just loving it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and this child comes over and, you know, I know this child a little bit and they sit in my lap and um, and the child starts um, touching my hair. Right. And I have mm-hmm. braids and mm-hmm. the child is like, your hair is really soft. And I said, my hair is really soft, um, but I'm not a kitten. And when there's a person, you have to ask a person before you touch them. Um, and I said, it's really important that 
that we ask people. And it might even, you know, you could ask mm-hmm. the kittens, but they can't answer you. But I can answer you. And I will let you know that right now it's okay with me if you wanted to touch my hair. Um, but make sure that if there's another person and you wanted to touch something or you have a question about them, that you ask them first. And she's like, oh, okay. Like, I can do that. And so yes, I said, you can, yes. you know, you can touch it again and that's okay. And so she's like, you know, she touches a little bit and she makes a couple more comments. Like, you know, how come when I pull it, it bounces right back up, right? Like, yeah, yeah well, I can tell you about like coiling <laughs> um, and all of these things. But, yes. um, but so we had a really wonderful conversation because I don't want it to come from a place of her feeling as though there's something bad about noticing this. But I right. also want her to have an idea but about that people are not pets and that we yeah, all yeah. we all have autonomy and you should respect every person's body and that all bodies right. are are special and are mm-hmm. worthy of being, you know, protected and that everyone has the opportunity to say whether someone can or cannot touch their body. And so we had a really good, you know, developmentally appropriate conversation about yes. like consent, basically. And I think that that can be really helpful in those moments for teachers to hear, like, this is how you can navigate, like, you know, what if someone starts comparing your hair to a kitten? Well, that yes. can feel really uncomfortable. And also the door is now open for that important conversation. Yes. And then we hope that when that child continues to grow up, they will help to educate others about boundaries and being respectful of people's bodies. So that's beautiful, you know, the way that you handled that conversation. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, we talked a little bit about parents earlier, but I want to talk a little bit more about parents. So when parents have their children in an early childhood program, Sometimes uh, they might hear from their child of an incident. Either their child may have been um, uh, the victim of a racialized incident, or it could be that their child said something derogatory or made, you know, made a statement. When that happens to a parent, they're hearing something, or or perhaps they've even witnessed something as they're dropping off or picking up. What is a good course of action? Because once again, we know parents are, we are we're all operating out of our own experiences as well. And um, for some parents, like we said, it's very uncomfortable talking about race and we don't know how to bring things up. And so how can a parent approach a teacher or an administrator at their child's early childhood program um, about a racialized incident? I think when incidents happen at schools, it's really important for parents to say something pretty quickly. I think talking Mm -hmm. directly with your child's teacher is the kind of number one course of action, right? To to say, this is what my child came home and said, can can we have a conversation about this, right? Um, or if it's at drop-off or pickup saying, like, this happened today. I know right now is not the best time for us to talk mm-hmm. about this, but my child, you know, reported this last night. I'd really like to have a conversation. Your teacher is, you know, definitely going to make time to have those conversations. When a, teach- when a parent says, like, something serious has happened, there needs to be a conversation, Teachers yeah. make time for for that to happen. Um, I think that if in the interaction with the teacher, um, it feels as though there is something systemic happening, right? Like maybe mm. um, it was something that happened in a lobby or front desk area, or maybe this is not the first time that it's happened. Mm-hmm. Then I do mm-hmm. think that administration needs to get involved because then it sounds as though it could be an issue that may be needing more attention than just a teacher working with an individual parent or or child uh, or group of children. So uh, so I think that that's kind of the the order that I would approach it, but I also yeah. think, you know, really 
teachers being ready to have those conversations with families. You know, if teachers can bring it up first, that's even better, right? If a teacher says, today at school, you know, um, these two children were playing, this was said, Um, we had a conversation right there in the moment, we addressed it, I wanted to make sure that you know about it. Um, When you talk to your child, you know, when they get home today, can you please get their perspective? And then let's touch base about it again tomorrow, right? Like, um, I think trying to address it as as quickly as possible. But, you know, children don't always say the same thing to us that they say, you know, when they get home or or vice versa. And so if they are very comfortable um, at school, they may tell us the exact same thing. But if they're feeling, you know, really bad or, you know, um, left out or hurt by something that happened, they may be less likely to share that with the the teacher at school. Um, Or if they're not feeling safe in the space or if some mm. you know someone just made them overall feel bad mm. or if it if it's starting to feel as though um, it's starting to be a pattern then I think that teachers really need to work together with the parents to resolve it. We all know in early childhood, like everything starts with relationships. And so having really good relationships at the beginning with families, but also being really clear. So even on our tours, we talk about that we use anti-bias and anti-racist pedagogy at school so that Mm -hmm. all of our families know that's what's happening here. And so if something happens, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it with your child. We're going to talk about it with this, with the classroom community. We may talk about it with the school community, depending on what happened, that this is the way that we address these things. We don't ever want your child to feel shamed or embarrassed mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. the things that they're doing, but we will see these as growth opportunities. And so we will, instead of, you know, a shushing or um, trying to brush it to the side, we will lean into those moments so that we can have really important conversations because we believe that that learning is important learning for the rest of their lives. Yes. You know, um, you are kind of a a national expert when it comes to nature-based learning. I've also heard that you say that nature can be healing and it's a great venue to hold equity. Can you talk a little bit more about why that is? Sure. I think we have a a very natural affinity for nature, right? Um, The whole biophilia hypothesis that humans are really designed to thrive in natural environments. And we have built up these things and then we start to, you know, we put windows up because we really want to see nature or we bring plants in because we really feel better when nature is nearby. And so knowing that about ourselves, we have pets because nature makes us feel more whole. And so making opportunities for children to spend a lot of time outside for me is incredibly important. Um, And not only to give them that sense of belonging in the world, in the broad, broad world, but like that sense of belonging that happens when you're in a space that you are feeling one with. I feel like that around water. Some people feel that way around woods or a beach or, you know, a mountaintop. We all have those spaces in the world where we're feeling really at one. But the other thing is that when we devise classrooms, I have art by children up on the wall. I have, you know, some photos that I may have Mm -hmm. curated. I choose the books. I choose the puzzles. There are adults that are in the space that are orchestrating all of those things, right? We are the curators of our classroom. And outside, we are not. 
the nature yeah. is the curator of that classroom. And so That's it does right. it does not carry the bias that we do. Um, of course, you know, in highly manicured spaces, it can carry some of that bias as well. But the more wild the space, the more nature is really the, the curator of our experiences and really can foster our learning and, and growth in, in so many different ways. Sheila Williams-Ridge is co-director of the Child Development Laboratory School at the University of Minnesota. She's also co-author of Nature-Based Learning for Young Children, anytime, anywhere, on any budget. Sheila Williams-Ridge shares some wonderful resources with me, including books and videos she uses with teachers at the lab school to open up conversations about implicit bias. One of the tools she suggests is the Harvard Implicit Association Test. It's a series of free online assessments that look at how quickly our brains connect with different concepts, including associations around race. We've posted links to all of those resources on our episode page, along with a link to our discussion guide for this episode. You can find that discussion guide, along with discussion guides for all of our episodes, at npr.org backslash earlyrisers. While you're there, you can also subscribe to this podcast. And for more resources on how to talk with very young children about race and racism, visit littlemomentscount.org. Before we go, if you're an early childhood educator, we're curious about how your experiences around race and implicit bias show up in the classroom. Do you have a personal story to share about something you've experienced or observed? We'd love to hear about it. You can record a voice memo and email it to us at earlyrisers at npr.org. We may use your audio reflection in an upcoming episode. This episode of Early Risers was produced by Nancy Rosenbaum. Our technical director is Alex Simpson, and our executive producer is Andrea Borg. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. Special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. Thanks for listening.